Chains by Lori Halsey Anderson. Chapter 20. Tuesday, July 2nd through Tuesday, July 9th, 1776. At the top of this chapter is primary evidence. Um, it's a quote from a letter written by John Hancock, who was the leader, or what they called the president, of the Continental Congress. And it was to General George Washington. And it's written because when they say the Declaration, on July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was drawn up and signed and by most of the people there. And it was given to General George Washington to announce to all the troops under him. It says, The Congress have judged it necessary to dissolve the connection between Great Britain and the American colonies and to declare them free and independent states. As you will perceive by the enclosed declaration, I am directed to request you have it proclaimed at the head of the army in the way you shall think most proper. <clears throat> Chapter 20 That week unspooled slowly with hot days and muggy, breathless nights. Militia units from the surrounding colonies piled into the city. Ordinary folks skedaddled out of it as fast as their ho horse or feet would carry them. The extra soldiers were not the cleanest sort, or maybe they were too busy drilling and making gunpowder cartridges to wash. Whatever the cause, New York soon smelled like a garbage pit mixed with a fresh mountain of manure, the stench cooked under the midsummer sun. Madame's moods changed with the tide. One moment she floated on clouds of fancy, imagining her grand life once the British beat the rebels. Next she fell into melancholy grumbling about the lazy British commanders floating at anchor off Staten Island, observing New York through long spyglasses, but making no move to invade. She now carried with her a brocade pouch, suspended from a red satin cord. With the pouch lay a green flask filled with a calming elixir prescribed by the doctor. He advised her to drink from it whenever the need arose. She also took to walking around the house in her stocking feet, trying to catch me unawares as I scrubbed or dusted or polished, often with Ruth at my side. She said nothing during these encounters, but watched us with hungry hawk eyes. It unnerved me. The week after Hickey's hanging, Becky suffered a mild attack of the ague that had befallen so many soldiers. She grew pale and sweaty, but did not require purging or leeches. In her stead, I went to the market. Our needs were fewer now that we no longer fed the master and his companions. T'was a good thing, for farmers were afraid to come into the city, and there was less to choose from. More people fled every day, including the waves of General Washington and Colonel Knox and Brigadier Green, her, her that folks said was a, such a big flirt. I searched for Kirsten every day, but Bellingham's affairs kept him out of sight. I was afraid to seek out Colonel Regan, afraid that word would get back to Madame and our lives be put in jeopardy. Ten days after the British flooded the river with their ships, news that the Congress had declared independence arrived in New York. The declaration was read to the troops from the steps of City Hall. The men cheered so loud it seemed to shake the whole island. I hurried from the egg cellar to see the cause of the commotion. The cheering men danced and marched down Broadway, tossing their hats into the air and shouting across the river at the silent ships of England. They gathered into a mob on the bowling green around the massive statue of King George III. I stayed at the edge of the crowd, hoping for a glimpse of Curson or a soldier familiar with familiar from my visit to the battery. The king was mounted on his horse, and the horse mounted on a white marble pedestal that rose to the height 
of three men standing one atop the other. Both the horse and the man were fashioned larger than could be possible, but I suppose that was the way of kings. They were both made of gold that sometimes glittered in the sunlight, but dulled when the clouds inf interfered. Ropes appeared as if conjured, thick ropes used for tying ships to the docks. The men cheered louder and worked together to throw the ropes over the king and his horse and tie them tightly. One, two, three, heave! One, two, three, heave! The men strained their arms and backs. Boys on the edge of the crowd jumped up and down. Common folk stood froze at the sight of a king, being pulled down by the strength of men working together. One, two, three, heave! The statue toppled, slowly at first, then gaining speed as the weight fell from the sky to the ground. The men scrambled out of the way, no one wishing to be crushed by a fallen king. As it crashed, they shouted even louder and swarmed over the thing. Axes were called out over axes were called for and rushed out of workshops and up from the barracks a half dozen men took to chopping the king and his steed to bits i inched closer how could they be chopping through a statue with simple axes a piece of tail broke off and a soldier held it up for all to see the king was not made of gold but of soft lead covered with gilt paint the crowd shouted again as another soldier lifted the king's head freshly removed from the neck. A fife and drum corps started playing just beyond the mob, piping out the song usually heard during a tar and feathering party. The men made short work of King George. When the statue was reduced into pieces that could be easily carted off, they did just that. The plan was to melt down all the lead into bullets. We'll fire majesty at the red coats, joked a man with a booming voice. I said his companion, shouldering an axe. Emanations for Leighton George will make deep impressions on the enemy. <laughs> As the crowd marched off to make bullets and celebrate liberty and independence in the taverns, I realized dark was fast falling and I had tarried overly long. I picked up a silver of lead that lay in the street. It was fringed with guilt, but my own piece of majesty, tyrants beware, I thought as I put it in my pocket. I was surprised to see the front parlor windows alight when I walked down the Wall Street. Is the master back? I asked Becky. She was dozing in the chair by the kitchen fire with a red checked shawl around her shoulders, still worn down from her illness. Becky yawned and stretched. Far from it, Madam paid a call on the reverend's wife after supper. Came home with high color in her cheeks and a bee in her bonnet. Dress the child, she says. Make sure both of those girls eat something nourishing and sweet. Did she fall and hit her head? I asked, setting down the basket of eggs. Becky laughed. I think the Mrs. Reverend served her a dose of scripture. The hard kind, Madam says. I've been too harsh on my servants. I must mend my ways or the Lord will punish me. I was confuddled. She's being kind to Ruth again? Becky stood slowly, wincing from the aches in her bones. Surely so. Ruth lit up like a lantern when she saw them fancy clothes again, promised to be quiet as ever, made short work of the gingerbread, Madam Baked, too. This was too much. I sat down at the table. Madam Baked? She's a fair hand in the kitchen when she puts her mind to it. Left the dishes for yours truly, but the cake was tasty. Those two pieces are for you. She was most firm about it. She stopped to cough up what sounded like a large wet worm from her throat. <coughs> 
She cooked up sweet milk for you, too, with nutmeg, cinnamon, and sugar. She said you was to have some with your gingerbread. I sniffed the pitcher. It smelled good enough. Did you have any? Not with this cough. Milk would stop my, my lungs. I looked around the kitchen. Where's Ruth now? Becky unpinned her apron and folded it, then tied her on her bonnet, preparing to go home. Madam got it in her head to play cards this eve. Has two companions with her. The Mrs. Drinkwater and her daughter, the one who's to marry some sort of lord or duke or some such. Ruth has been with them. She was right cheered after the cake and milk. Should I take anything in? I just came from there. Madam was most def definite. Tell Sal to enjoy her cake and a night off. She has worked hard these weeks and I could do with a good night's sleep. She called me Sal instead of girl, I asked. And you are full certain she didn't hit her head today. Becky laughed, and the laugh caught in her throat and bubbled into a cough. Look here, she's likely to turn back into a sour old cow by breakfast. So I say have a good sit down and enjoy a little peace. I poured a mug of the milk. Huzzah for the reverend's wife. I wanted to savor the gingerbread bite by bite and sip the milk slowly, but I couldn't help myself. The mug was drained and the plate empty soon after Becky left. The milk was the sweetest thing I had ever tasted. The spices so thick I could chew, near chew them. No wonder Ruth was cheered by it. I washed up my dishes, tidied the kitchen, and found myself with idle hands. A rare event, indeed. I might could sneak into the library and borrow that Caruso book. I could read by the fire with the mending basket nearby to slip the book into should Madame approach. That seemed a fine plan, but first I wanted to shed my bodice. It pinched something awful under my arms. I felt my way down the cellar stairs with my toes and heard the sound of laughter from Madame's company. I yawned. When would they leave? And what sort of ladies came to call this late? I removed my bodice and hung it on a nail. The palette looked soothing with cool and cool, and the thought of climbing the stairs again made me weary. But I would like to read a few more pages, but I was overly fatigued. But Mr. Crusoe was facing all sorts of dangers, but into betwixt one thought and the next, I fell asleep. For that, I shall never forgive myself. That's the end of chapter 20.